namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa bhutang tamang sankhang namasami Continuing with the chapter, A Buddha in Every Realm, we had finished the section on loving-kindness, and this is uh, attending to the present concentration. In order to free the heart from its addictions to afflictive habits, it's most helpful to continually bring attention to the experience of this present reality. How is this moment felt? How is it received? This body, this mind, in this moment. How is it? Then, on that basis of appreciation and acceptance of the material we're working with, we can set a direction. If we notice that we're tense or excited, we can lean towards calming and being peaceful. If we notice that we're sleepy and heavy, then we realize that we need to set the direction towards energizing, a way of enlivening the meditation practice. In a period of meditation, having brought awareness to the current state of mind and physical feelings, where we are starting from, we strengthen the attention on the body, establishing the posture, forming a balance of energy and relaxation. Having found that quality of balance between the body being energized but also relaxed, then we bring attention to the rhythm of the breathing, The body breathes on its own. It's not something that we have to do. Just as the heart beats on its own, our lungs breathe on their own. So in mindfulness of breathing, we bring attention to the breath as we let the body breathe according to its own pace, its own natural rhythm. We let that natural rhythm be at the center of our attention. The breathing is not a thing that you have to do. The mind is simply paying attention to a natural process. Uh, of course, uh, because there is some amount of personal will that can be um, brought to bear on the breath, we can choose to breathe deeply or to breathe in or breathe out, uh, to hold our breath or to breathe in a shallow way or a deep way. There's a, you know, we we um, we uh, uh, we quite easily say, you know, I uh, I am breathing, but we don't we don't say I am beating my heart. Do we? At least I don't think in anybody's language we say that. Oh, we've got the diagram up there. Excellent indeed. Two diagrams. Excellent indeed. Three diagrams. <laughs> wow, someone's been very prolific. Marvellous. Marvellous. Excellent. Um, yeah, so uh, that um, uh, with, uh, with mindfulness of breathing rather than the sort of the breathing something I am doing, then uh, what's most helpful is to have that sense of the body just breathing on its own and paying the attention, uh, giving attention to that process of breathing. Uh, um, it's interesting how um, when I, I first started practicing many, many years ago, uh, I had a similar experience to, to uh, uh, Po Chao, and he, he talks about his early practice and starting to try and work with mindfulness of breathing, then 
could, would find that it was such a chore, such a kind of burdensome task, he would think, have I been doing this all my life? Yeah, you know, I used to work in the fields and I was breathing all the time, but how come breathing is just such a, a difficult thing for me, to be, for me to be doing? It's like this, this heavy sort of burden, this, this troublesome, uh, arduous task that he, he had to be doing. And, and I had the same kind of feeling. It's like, oh, do I do this all day long? I mean, it's a ridiculous thought because you know you do. You have been doing it all your life. But this sort of, this, this, the, the doingness and the me doing this thing, me doing the breathing is, uh, can be a, quite a, a chore. So also, uh, and as I've been giving instruction a bit um, at the beginning of this period of group practice, uh, it's very helpful to be aware of how self-view takes over the making of effort. Like I should sit up straight, or I should relax, or uh, you know, I uh, I want to. Uh, it's time for me to focus on the breathing, and and all of that uh, eye making and mind making that can easily be sort of brought into uh, the way that the, the meditation is guided. And it's more helpful to establish the quality of. Uh, of awareness and uh, an attunement to the present, and let that awareness have its own effect. Um, that uh, oftentimes we think that any kind of effort, any kind of doingness, is necessarily stressful. If I, me doing something, and, and we take peace to be me, to, me to <laughs> switching off, me not doing anything, so slumped in a in an armchair dozing. That uh, that's restful, but there has to be a way that effort can be uh, exercised, effort can be made, that leads directly towards peacefulness. Otherwise, how could right effort be part of the Eightfold Path, which is the path that leads to peace? There has to be a way that effort uh, can be made without uh, efforting <laughs> and stressing. So I, I like to emphasize that, and I say it over and over again, because it's a tricky area of the practice, because we're so used to sort of me doing something, me me following a program or me following, you know, my, doing my, my work or my responsibilities. But there's a way uh, that we can find that by, by attuning the attention to the present, then it's uh, that guiding of, uh, of attention, say bringing attention to the posture, to whether things need to be, uh, will be, to be more energized or to be more relaxed or to bring attention to, to the breathing, that can be guided by mindfulness and wisdom, by the attunement to the present, rather than me doing something. that makes sense? Do say no if it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully people can get a feeling for that, because it, it makes a huge difference. Uh, and the, the, the in, uh, engagement in, in uh, energy and effort, then it's not stressful, but rather it's, it's something that's that's uh, peaceful and and pleasant rather than a, a chore. Also, one of the um, the aspects of using mindfulness of breathing that, and uh, as I've been saying the last couple of days about listening to the inner sound, the nada sound, is that because that doesn't respond to personal will at all. At least I've never found, or I've never met anyone who can can sort of make the inner sound do anything, uh, get louder or quieter. <coughs> by choice uh, but uh, that's one of the advantages of, uh, of using that as a meditation object is because there's a natural sense of just using it to pay attention to the present and it doesn't feed that illusion of personal control or, or it feed that uh, this kind of un unconscious sense of self-view me me in charge of things or me uh, me uh, 
doing something to get a particular result, but rather it's presence. Like you, know, you can you can feel the force of gravity. I, I can't do anything with gravity. Right? None of us can. It's it's a force we all experience, and it's not subject to personal will. You know, you can't say I, I, I'll make gravity stronger or lighter. Just, <laughs> if you've got psychic powers, maybe you can, but don't, don't think any of us have. So that uh, that, uh, in a similar way, I find that using the inner sound as a, a meditation object helps to both support that quality of focus of attention, um, but without feeling that sense of you know, uh, of uh, I I am engaged in some activity to get some result that I want. Now we focus the attention on the rhythm of the breathing. Whenever the mind is distracted, there might be a sound in the room or memories that are triggered by something in, in the body, a vehicle passing in the street. We take note of that. Notice that the mind has been caught, that there's a distraction, and then consciously let go. Notice the feeling of grasping, and then notice the feeling of not grasping. So, so hanging on to a sound or a feeling, caught up in that, take a moment to notice that, and then relaxing the grip. Bring the attention back to the sensations of the breath. We work with an attitude of loving-kindness, radical acceptance. This means that as we work with the body and mind, we're doing it with an attitude of friendliness and collaboration. The mind with its habits of wandering thoughts is not the opponent or the enemy. We're not working against the mind or the body, but rather we are working with it. So that's, that's very, again, it's a very common habit that, that we have is that when we uh, say sit down to meditate or do walking meditation with sort of trying to control the mind or trying to focus the attention, then our thoughts and our feelings, our ideas, our memories become a, become a problem or an enemy or, you know, ah, get out of here. <laughs> We're trying to get rid of our distracted thoughts. And so it easily turns them into an, an, an intrusion or a problem or a, something that, that's got to be got rid of. So I, I often emphasize this, that we're working uh, with the mind, working with our thoughts, our feelings, and, and our perceptions, rather than against them. But if we are a parent, a mother, a father, or a teacher in a kindergarten, for like a little kid's school, and we have to teach a small child how to write the alphabet, the child may be restless. We patiently and carefully sit the child down put the crayon in their hand, put the piece of paper in front of them, and gently, holding their hand, we make the letter A. One leg here, one leg there, and a bar across the middle. A. We patiently work with that restless, confused, or chaotic energy. We work with kindness and a sense of cooperation, taking that energy and guiding it, not opposing it, not fearing it. If we wish to realize peace and freedom, we need to work without with our minds and bodies employing the same kind of patience and compassion, but also with strength, giving direction. So that with a, teaching a child how to write, it's like the, you know, there is a direction that's given, this is how you do an A. So, well, I don't want to write an A like that, I want to do my own A. Like, well, yeah, you can draw your own picture, but <laughs> this is the alphabet in this language. So let, let's, let's start with A. If we wish to realize peace and freedom, we need to work with our minds and bodies employing the same kind of patience and compassion, but also with strength, giving direction. We are giving a form, 
like focusing on the breath, but we're giving that direction uh, from a heart of loving-kindness, of friendliness. If we establish this attitude in our way of working with the mind and body, kindness and compassion linked with giving direction, then the means whereby we are training the system are peaceful, as well as awake and aware. According to the Buddha's teachings, cause and effect are always united. If we use a peaceful and well-organized harmonious cause, it will result in a peaceful and harmonious effect. In contrast, if we use a contentious, forceful means, trying to compel, to force the mind and body to obey by sheer will, the results will necessarily be stress-filled and afflicted. When we meditate, using a method such as bringing the attention to focus on the breath, I encourage this attitude of working with loving-kindness and the quality of acceptance, and then looking at the results. We are aided in our efforts by paying attention to the effect that that has. Though also, just on that, um, the, uh, the, uh, the classic political philosophy of the end, justify, the end justifies the means is absolutely not a Buddhist principle. In, in Buddhism, the, end, the means and the end are always connected. So that's what this is pointing to. So that, that if you want a peaceful result, you need to use a peaceful means. That doesn't mean being passive or not taking any action or doing any steering, but rather it's this basic principle of collaboration, cooperation, working with the, the natural system rather than trying to, to fight against it. So the means and the end are, are unified. And so if you use a, an aggressive, forceful, uh, violent means, you know, you might get a little bit of control, like, you know, shut up, be quiet, sit still. You know, the kid might sit there for a, a moment, or you might sort of frighten yourself into just obedience. Okay. Out of sheer um, uh, power of the will, but that can only hold together for a certain amount, and then <laughs> things things will, will slide off, just like in a, a repressive uh, regime, and governments that hold people in the in a very repressed state, there's always underground movements that are ready to burst up and, and cause rebellion as soon as the, the control slips in, in any way. So, are there any thoughts, questions, reflections on any of that? There's quite a few things there. Yes, Venerable. Yes, Ajahn, because you brought up uh, the, the sound of silence, and that, uh, it's not directly related to the reading, mm -hmm. but... Uh, the me and mind making when we listen to the sound of silence is basically not possible, right? Because uh, it's, it's more difficult. You can have I am listening to the not a sound. Okay. <laughs> it can be that I am the one listening. I am doing the the inner listening practice, mm -hmm. even if it's not spelled out in in words. That, that attitude can be there. But anyway, carry on. Okay, but, but that's also helpful. And the other aspect to that was when the when we're listening to the sound of silence, like the moment that listening is happening, like meditation is right there, right? Yes. Because um, like what I sometimes pick up from from Lumpur and from from Ajahn is that uh, you know don't meditate, you know don't don't try to meditate. And, and I feel with the sound of silence that comes very easy mm -hmm. because there's just a kind of like, oh, as, as soon as I'm kind of listening to that, I, I don't really have to do anything because it kind of like at one moment I just become aware of it. So is that the... That's certainly what, yeah, an, an aspect of it. Just like the, the brother of your teacher, uh, Mingja Rinpoche, 
his brother Tsogni Rinpoche, he has a phrase, undistracted non-meditation, which I think is a great phrase. I've used it many times. <laughs> undistracted non-meditation. And it's, it's, it's similarly, it's related to that, uh, what I've been talking about, about not having that efforting or doingness, so that it's, there is, attention is being paid, there is, <laughs> there, but it's, uh, it's not me meditating. So that, uh, I thought that was a very nifty, very, uh, very uh, sort of skillful way of phrasing it. Undistracted non-meditation. And in the light of, your know, meditation is this thing that we do, and, it's, and so that it very easily has that, that efforting and self-view, the kind of unconscious cons- attitudes of I and me and mine that slip in, and it's me doing the practice. It might be that I'm putting a lot of effort into it, and I'm getting good results, but even if I've got the good results, and I'll, I'll give another reading on that in a minute, but the, then still there's a me there who's got the good results, <laughs> and there's the, the, still a limitation and, and dukkha that comes from that. And still a, there isn't a, a genuine freedom of heart, uh, as long as there's any kind of, either coarse kind of self-view, like sakayaditi, the attachment to the, the personality and the, the body and the, the, the um, uh, you know, the, the five khandas in a very direct coarse way, or the subtle kinds of self-attachment, uh, like what's called asmimana, the conceit of, of I identity, the conceit of I am, which is much more sort of invisible, <laughs> pervasive. Insidious is a good word, you know. You know that word insidious? So it, it's, it kind of slides in and, and has its effect without, without you realizing. Insidious. Uh, like, uh, so asmimana, uh, it's like has that insidious effect that uh, that without the mind saying, "Oh, I am practicing," or "I am having this experience," there can be that there's an owner here. <laughs> there's, a, there's an I that is the doer, the owner, and so on. <coughs> so, yeah, so undistracted non-meditation, uh, and that's why I find the listening to the inner sound is a, is also. A, uh, uh, a very skillful way of you know, cultivating that attentiveness. And also, uh, if you develop it in the quiet of a meditation hall or on the walking meditation path, then it becomes more and more easy to access that at all times. Like I can hear it now as I'm talking. And so it becomes a, 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 an ever-present quality that sharpens that recognition. Oh, in this moment it's like this. Yes. Um, so I've been exploring craving and how there always seems to be a self or an ego when craving is involved. But awareness doesn't have craving. There's no kind of ego there. And I'm wondering. Well, I wanted to check: is that correct? <laughs> Am I on the right path? Um, and there seems to be a fine line between effort and craving, and it's slipping into craving. So I don't know if you have any advice around that, because you may want to get from you know A to B, but there's a skillful way to go about that, and then there's the craving, mm-hmm. ego-filled way to go about it. Um, do you have any advice? Uh, well, the, the first thing you said, um, so yeah, when there's a, a awareness, um, if when that's that's really clarified, then there's no ego there. As I was just saying, saying to uh, Venerable Yeshe, that uh, there can be subtle kinds of of that asmimana, the conceit of identity, 
that can have its have its subtle insidious effect. Um, uh, but the, the the sharper, the more that the, the, the we practice, and the sharper the attention gets, the more that even those subtle feelings of I, I the experiencer, I the one who's owning this 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 feeling, or either the one who's making a choice, that it's more easily noticeable. And then, as it's noticed, then the, the effect of the awareness the awareness can be to to see the empty and non-personal nature. Even the I am feeling is not self. It's just another mental formation that arises, and it doesn't have an owner. But it's what it's saying is "I am," but it's it, there isn't really a, an owner of that "I am" feeling. It's just another mental formation, like the the, the you know the, the feeling of the of your foot on the ground. It's just a, a sensation. It's just a perception. That's all that arises and passes away, like like any other perception or, or just visual forms. It's just they change. They're in a state of fluctuation all the time so i say yes that's that that's uh that, that's on the mark there and the second part was um about um so you're trying to to get somewhere without effort and mm. this craving and mm. making sure like what distinguishes one from the other is it removal of the ego well that that uh, i mean that's a sort of in a way an ongoing exercise how to how to be a person <laughs> get around and do things without me going anywhere without uh, and that's that uh, uh, I think in this this morning during the the morning reflections I was talking about to let go of that sense of becoming and so that um, even as the the body is walking along then there can be the 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 recognition of oh, the here is the mind aware of the perceptions of the body moving actually the mind isn't really going anywhere there isn't anyone going anywhere there's just perceptions of mind that are changing so like right now i can say you know my there's a perception of the hand moving but that which knows the hand moving isn't going anywhere it's always here well, it's a it's a here without a there which is another <laughs> not to make it not to make it too complicated but that um that recognition and again i think as i was saying this morning is noticing how the mind is getting caught and feeling that courtness that bhavatanha that oh oh there's me heading towards the door oh okay so without and, and the ending of bhava the bhava niroda doesn't mean oh there's me heading towards the door okay i should stop you know it's not like freezing in your tracks that's a kind of foolish it's a sort of superficial or foolish way of relating to niroda but rather and this was a theme Lumpur Cha would talk about a lot, just walking one step at a time, you know, walking without going anywhere. You're still, you can walk quickly and not go anywhere. <laughs> so the body is still traveling from A to B, doing, it, doing its thing. You know, you've got to cross to the, the other side of the room and go through the doorway to, to get something from the cupboard. But even as the body is walking, there can be that recognition of nobody going anywhere. And so, the, in the very last period of time that Lumpur Cha was was teaching, the last couple of years, um, you know, he would have these particular themes that he would use for some time. So that, uh, again, as I was quoting in the morning reflections about you can't go forward, you can't go back, you can't can't stand still. Where do you go? That was a theme he used for quite a few years. And he just sort of, random people who had come to visit, he would just sort of ask them that question. You know, total strangers who just come to pay respects, and, and he just would sort of say. If you can't go forwards, you can't go backwards, you can't stand still, where do you go? It's like, 
Uh, we just want to pay respects to them for. <laughs> and but he would, you know, he'd ask that question, see what people would do with it. But then, uh, so that was for quite some time. He would use that, and then in the last, uh, the last period of time that he was teaching, and his and Ajahn Jayasara used it as the title of Lumpur's biography, the stillness flowing. Uh, he would ask this question, like similarly, you know, again to random people or. According to uh, his own feeling for what would be useful to engage people with, he say, "Have you ever seen flowing water?" People say, "Oh yes, you know, I've seen streams and tap, you know, water running out of a tap and such like." But have you ever seen still water? Said, yeah, I've seen you know, water sitting in a jar. Yeah. So, have you ever seen water that is still and flowing? And, they go, and, and again, like you can't go forward, you can't go back, you can't stand still. Where do you go? It's like a, it's a conundrum. It's a puzzle. And deliberately to sort of stop the mind. Like, have you ever seen water that's both still and flowing? And people would be puzzled. And then he would let people work with that for a bit, see what they came up with. And then he would say that the mind is like still flowing water. Nam lai ning. Nam lai ning. That's the correct pronunciation. <laughs> so. Nam is water, Lai is to flow, Ning is to be still. And so he said the mind is like still flowing water. And that uh, he, there was you know, different times he talked about it, but essentially, so the perceptions flow, like the movement of my, of my hand, uh, the perceptions are changing. But if the mind, uh, say, rests in that quality of awareness, then along with the perception of movement, there is that which is fundamentally still. In a way, it's like a, a a here without a there, and it's a still without a movement. It's like it, it's it's still a stillness that is uh, based on the quality of presence. It's not like a thing that has moved that <laughs> becomes still, but rather that quality of awareness is ever present. So, if there's a recognition along with the the, the perceptions of, of the body moving or hearing sounds changing or visual forms changing, that in a sense taking the Position <laughs> again, uh, yeah, a position that is no position. <laughs> Taking that position of of knowing, then there's a, a tremendous peacefulness even in the midst of activity. There can be a lot of movement of your own body, you know, walking along, or or, or you, you know the sound of your own voice. Uh, there can be a lot of things happening around you, but the mind can notice that quality of stillness and presence and inner silence, and so that. That um, still flowing water represents that, that that mixture, that kind of blending of qualities. That um, the uh, there is uh, there can be action being taken, walking from A to B, but then there's there's uh, this profound quality of peacefulness, stillness. There isn't that becoming urge, that bhavatanna, that me trying to get somewhere, and so. One of the reasons why uh, you know, people long for peace or they long for rest, but they can never find it, is because they're, they're, we're looking for for peace where it can't be found. The next thing is that on the you know, the weekend, when the, when the when the the bell rings <laughs> or the day off or the retirement or on the holiday or over there, you know, it's like a an ever retreating horizon. So we're looking for peace where it can't be found. We're looking for rest where there isn't any. And so 
the genuine peace is uh, is to be found in that timeless quality that's ever present but the attention is so caught by the changing uh, field of experience that we don't notice that that which is knowing all of the activity is fundamentally still peaceful Okay. Okay. Oh yes. Sorry, uh, so the Asmi Mana can be followed up by doctrine of Anatta. Is it the same thing or? Uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, um, I was Asmi Mana is the uh, the refined le- uh, end of the scale for developing the insight into Anatta. So the. The, the coarse end, or the, the, the most tangible end, is Sakayaditi, or self-view. So that's the first of the... If you're familiar with the ten fetters, the yes. ten samyojana, so the ten obstacles, or the kind of shackles, the, 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 uh, the things, the chains that, that bind the heart down. So number one on the list is self-view. And Lumpur uh, Sumedha usually translates that very hopefully as uh, it's the belief, I am the body, I am the personality. That's what I am. So that's self-view. I am this body, I am this personality, this is me, this is mine, this is what I am. And so then that's the first of the ten. And then Asmimana is the eighth. So it's up in the Arahant strata. Amongst the the last five that are only let go of with Arahantship. So the the eighth on the list is Asmimana. So there can be uh, using the develop uh, the you can develop the insight into anatta <coughs> and let go of self view and be have, have a clear understanding of attachment of the body and personality and let go of that but there can still be strong habits of asmimana operating invisibly or insidiously. So I'll get on to Anatta in a little bit. Anyway. So it doesn't matter how many times the attention drifts away from the present. It's not a competition. Nobody is keeping score. Well, maybe they are. <laughs> if you are keeping score, how many times you're distracted? I'd encourage you not, not to bother too much. <laughs> Nobody is keeping score. This is an exercise in how to work with the mind's natural tendency towards distraction. Whenever we notice the mind is drifting, caught up in memory of the past, plans for the future, drifting into sleepiness, as soon as we notice that sense of grasping and entanglement, we let go. There is a releasing of the grip and an end to the grasping. We bring the attention back to the feeling of the breath and notice the quality of the mind free of grasping. How is that? In this way, we become very familiar with the process of distraction, then awakening, and letting go and re-establishing the attention in the reality of the present. When we consider the teaching of dependent origination, its very essence is this experience of getting distracted and grasping and caught up, and the mind's ability to notice and let go, and having let go, there's the experience of clarity and peacefulness. This comes when the mind is free of grasping. Just this. So, Paticca Samuppada, the Samuppada is the Getting caught up and grasping, getting distracted, and the the origin, the, the the etymology of the word distracted literally means pulled apart, distracted, tracting like tractor, um, 
pulled apart. So, uh, so that's the the catastrophe, the the samupada, particular samupada, and then having recognized that, having feeling the the dukkha of that grasping, and then letting uh, the uh, awareness have its effect and responding to that grasping by letting go, then the experience of having let go, there is clarity and peacefulness, dukkha nirodha. And uh, that, that's kind of the whole practice. <laughs> and that, as the Buddha said uh, many times, I teach one thing, dukkha and the ending of dukkha. So that's the, the, um, the whole of the, 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 the one, a summary that the Buddha made himself, I teach one thing, dukkha and the ending of dukkha. And also in the um, uh, Sutta number 37 of the um, Majjhima Nikaya, I can read that briefly for you. The shorter discourse on the destruction of craving. Sutta number 37. Uh, and uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa was very fond of, of quoting this. He said, you know, you can sum up the entire teaching of the Buddha in four words that are found in this sutta. And this is a dialogue between Saka, the ruler of the gods, Indra, uh, ruler of the Tavatinsa heaven, and the Buddha. Then Saka, ruler of the gods, went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, he stood at one side and asked, Venerable Sir, how in brief is a bhikkhu liberated by the destruction of craving, one who has reached the ultimate end, the ultimate security from bondage, the ultimate holy life, the ultimate goal, and so on and so forth. And so when he says bhikkhu, it means in the, in the sense of a meditator or a spiritual practitioner. Here, ruler of the gods, a bhikkhu has heard that nothing is worth adhering to, and the Pali for that is sabe dhamma nalang abhinivesaya. When a bhikkhu has heard that nothing is worth adhering to, he directly knows everything. Having directly known everything, he fully understands everything. Having fully understood everything, whatever feeling he feels, whether pleasant or painful or neither pleasant nor painful, he abides contemplating impermanence in those feelings, contemplating fading away, contemplating cessation, contemplating relinquishment. Contemplating thus, he does not cling to anything in the world. When he does not cling, he is not agitated. When he is not agitated, he personally attains Nibbāna. He understands birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, and so on and so forth. What has, what was to be done, has been has been done. So that, and so Ajahn Buddha Das was saying that's the the summary of the entire Buddha's teaching. Sabe dhammana lang abhinivesaya, just four words. <laughs> and it's, it's also interesting in the, if you're familiar with the Vimalakirti Sutra, um, uh, the, it's a northern Buddhist scripture. When it, it's a uh, um, venerable Sariputta is being made fun of. Sort of a, a mere arahant, and then when Vimalakirti, uh, as this enlightened layman, um, reveals the sort of what is actually genuinely most powerfully and most liberating, the actual supreme, fantastic, uh, ultimate teaching, what he says in, is in the Sanskrit is "Sabedamanalangabhinivesaya." You can check for yourself. I, 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 I actually went and checked the Sanskrit because it, when I was reading the Vimalakirti Sutra, I thought. That looks like a really familiar phrase. I wonder if... And I went to the, the Sanskrit and checked it, and it's the exact equivalent of this same phrase. And so it's kind of interesting that he, he uh, Vimalakirti makes fun of the Venerable Sariputta for being a, a mere arahant, and then as he reveals this ultimate, superb, fantastic, uh, liberating teaching, it's exactly the same as what's here in the Pali Canon. 
in my, uh, my understanding, and I checked it with Robert Thurman as well, and he agreed it was the same phrase, if I remember correctly. I thought I'd better double-check this <laughs> before I make sweeping statements about these things. Uh, and he's a very accomplished Tibetan and Sanskrit scholar, so he, uh, he agreed with me. Sabe dhamma nalang abhinivesaya. Sabe, all dhamma things, uh, nalang should not be abhinivesaya clung to or grasped at. Sabe dhamma nalang abhinivesaya. So. Just this simple process we can all witness. This is the essence of the teachings on dependent origination and cessation. So I teach, and that, again, that's a very common phrase in the teachings. I teach one thing, dukkha and the ending of dukkha. So then going on to the three characteristics. Um, any other questions on samadhi? Yes, Deepa. Where would um, a vivid imagination You're asking for a friend, right? Asking for a friend. Well, it's uh, it's uh, it's a good question. Um, so uh, it is because uh, well, all of that imagination is really in the sankara kanda. So it's all part of that. But you know, the Buddha was a great storyteller and incredibly imaginative. I mean, there's I mean, people from not just from the Buddhist. Uh, Field, but also from other religious uh, scholars and philosophers, recognize the Buddha was amazing in the range of similes and uh, stories and uh, analogies that he came up with. You know, with a staggering range uh, and of all different areas of life, and incredibly uh, well crafted to the people he was with and to, to make particular points. So the Buddha was a brilliant storyteller and one who could use imagination to to come up with scenarios and forms that would be meaningful to the person he's talking to. If he's talking to hunters, if he was talking to a farmer, if he's talking to a carpenter or to a, you know, to a, 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 a monarch, talking to a, you know, a rich householder, like Visaka. So he, would, uh, he was extraordinarily imaginative, but that imagination wasn't riddled with papancha. <laughs> but there's, there's an imaginative process that's going on that can be informed by um, wisdom, wise reflection. And so that, um, obviously, Papancha can creep into it. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, I've, I have written a lot of things myself, including a novel, uh, as well as um, other things. So... Imagine a way. Imagine a way. <laughs> but it, it can easily be prone to, to Papancha. But so, if... Um, the, the, the line between conceptual proliferation and this mental chatter and wise reflection, it, it's, it's a line that can easily be crossed without realizing. And people very, very often ask that question, how do you tell the difference between just mental proliferation and wise reflection? And, uh, and so 
I, what, I, what I usually say, and what I find for myself, is that if it's a genuine, wise reflection or investigation, then you're thinking in whole sentences that have a beginning, a middle, and end, you know, a subject, an object, and a predicate. They have um, uh, verbs and nouns and <laughs> adjectives, and, and they begin and they end. Papancha is just a, usually like a kind of uh, a, a broken or, or like a half-formed sequence of one one form, or, you know, one set of words chasing after another, and rarely finishing a sentence or, f- or, f- or finishing a theme. They're just sort of one uh, associative um, image after another. Yeah, and there is artistry and, and works of literature that are like that quite deliberately. Uh, they have their own poetry or their own form. Um, and so that uh, that that has its own place in the world. I I, I have read Finnegan's Wake, so that which is our entire sort of six or seven hundred pages of of a, a fairly impenetrable associative thought and streams of ideas and such like. So I do I do recognise that, that that has value and can can convey skillful and important meaning, but. In terms of of our internal process, I mean, I can't imagine what was going on in James Joyce's mind when he was composing that. It took him seventeen years to write it, so, uh, and uh, but if uh, if we are using wise reflection, then there's a measured quality. You think in whole sentences, and there's spaces between the pieces, like that. An image comes up. And then there's a, a pause or a space. Oh, that's interesting. Well, if that if that has something useful to say, then what does it imply about that pause? And then another mental image comes up or an idea. Oh, well, if that's a, yeah, oh, that's interesting. So if that's if that fits there, then what does it? And what else does it say? Pause. Oh, and so uh, you know, when I've been using that sort of imaginative process. Of myself in things I've been doing, um, then that's uh, what I find is most reliable. And uh, you know, you can do it just to, or just watch that happening as a random event when you're sitting in the temple or <laughs> in your room or wherever. Um, but also, if there is something that you need to write or something that you are, you know, you want, uh, you're supposed to be doing, um, then. Uh, it can be useful to make it a, a proper exercise and actually have a, like a, a pad of paper in front of you and a, and a pen. And then as, as things come to mind, you're to open your eyes, pick up the pen, and write something down. And I've done that many times. Okay, that's really, yeah, because I think that there's probably been like a bit of a, um, my friend, <laughs> thinking that that's, a, that's an unwholesome thing, you know, thing that happens, but actually often it comes to fruition and something comes of it. So it doesn't seem like the imagination should be quelled altogether. No, no, not not at all. Like, um, dis- should dissolve or disband. It should. It just needs to be channeled. That is that. It's like like any other kind of upaya or skillful means. Like, you know, the Buddha was an absolute genius with his imaginative skills and his language skills. Is incredible, incredible. Uh, this range is. You know, you keep coming across. Over the years, more and more things. How did? <laughs> what an extraordinary example, or, or how kind of neat! What a perfect fit. Just using a particular comment or a form or a, a, an image to carry a particular meaning in a situation. And uh, 
So it's it's a tool that can be used appropriate to situations. And so, as I said, you know, I, that's what I would I do. Like when I was writing that that story, the Mara and the Mangala, then it was you know the it, the, the the basic uh, plot of the whole thing took shape in about four or five days. But then obviously it, it takes time to write things down. So then. Yeah, you know, I'd write some things down. I think, okay, well, what happens next? Or, okay, well, you know, he's just said that. So, what would uh, what would follow on from that? Pause and just see what comes up. And if nothing comes up, okay, you know, go do something else. <laughs> Sit down, close your eyes, and and uh, meditate. Uh, so that uh, if we are using those imaginative skills in a, a as a uh, uh, in a way that's that's well balanced, it can be extraordinarily helpful. I mean, we are the beneficiaries of the Buddha's extraordinary skill at, at speaking and teaching and, and using those uh, this incredible array of array of similes and metaphors and stories that uh, have come down uh, over over the centuries from him. Okay, so the three characteristics. The Buddha gave us the tool of the three characteristics of existence to help uh, to help us investigate the nature of experience and, in turn, to strengthen that clarity and stability of awareness and wisdom. This is strengthening the presence of Buddha wisdom in each of those six realms. The three characteristics, capital T, capital C, are impermanence, anicca, unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, and not-self, anatta. All patterns of experience are understood to possess these three qualities. So every aspect of the, the inner and outer world, um, they, they are all recognized. That's why they're called the three characteristics of existence. They, they pertain to all existent things. Um, so that's, they are impermanent, they are unsatisfactory, and not self. All patterns of experience are understood to possess these three qualities. By using these three as tools to explore our attitudes, presumptions, attachments, and conditioning, we can discover where the mind habitually looks, in vain, for permanence, certainty, happiness, and the real me. Quote unquote. Insight meditation, vipassana, is the process of that revelation and the freedom of the heart that results from it. So these three are not the only characteristics of existence, but they're the... Um, uh, the um, ones that are primarily used, or the most common, uh, commonly used, skillful means in the in the development of of insight, and um, as I'll go on to explain, that they in the Buddha's second teaching, the Anattalakana Sutta, this is where he first laid out these these three as these uh, means of investigation, and um, these these particular qualities he he highlighted. Um, so that uh, we, we recite sometimes uh, here the Anattalakana Sutta. So that's the um, the second of the first, the Dhammachaka Sutta, the the teaching on the middle way and the four noble truths. That was the first discourse that the Buddha gave to his five companions in the Deer Park. And when he gave that that talk, then uh, only one of the five seemed to understand what he was saying. Kandanya became a stream enterer. So that's why at the end of that sutta is Anyasi Watabo Kondanyo, Anyasi Watabo Kondanyoti. Kandanya understands, Kandanya understands. So it's a, it's a kind of Pali joke 
So from that time forth, he was known as Anya Kandanya. That's his sort of nickname. Because the Buddha said, Kandanya understands. Anyasi, what the world Kandanya. So he got the nickname Kandanya who understands. Anya Kandanya. And he was known as Anya Kandanya from that time onwards. So Anicca. This means the quality of change, transitoriness in the objective domain and the quality of uncertainty on the subjective side of things. So we talk about anicca, um, it can uh, sort of change in terms of the objective world, things that are, are on the uh, sort of seen, heard, smelt, tasted and touched um, and, and thought and so on. But um, uncertainty is uh, referring to the subjective feeling. So when that, uh, the experience of, of change is apprehended, when the mind knows the quality of change, there is that recognition of, of not knowing what's going to happen next. So, the, so that's what I mean by saying the objective side of a Nietzsche is change or trans, transiency. And, often, and it's, it's interesting that when Lumpur Cha talked about a Nietzsche, rather than talking about uh, change and transitoriness or, uh, so much, because that can seem a bit external, sort of literally objectified, is that sort of out there, um, he mostly talked about Anicca as, the, on the subject side, the feeling of uncertainty, uh, the not being sure. So that's the feeling in the heart when, the, un, when the, the quality of change is experienced. The feeling is uncertainty because we don't know what's going to happen next. What's this going to turn into? So sometimes Anicca or Anicca-ta, um, uh, impermanence, uh, Anicca-ta uh, is translated as impermanence, uh, in terms of the object side and uncertainty on the subject side. Does that make sense? No? <laughs> so un- uncertainty is that feeling of not being sure. So I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know whether you're going to understand this or not. So there's, an un- there's a feeling of uncertainty. But, I can, but on the object side, I can tell that, uh, that your, your head just moved. <laughs> that I can see objects changing and the Garrick Margaret is just leaning to her right the sound of my voice is changing there's things that are changing in the objective world so the quality of change uh, Anicca um, uh, when it's translated as change it can seem like it's oh, it's all referring to that out there the, the, the sensory world but the, the, the emotional feeling um, that goes with that change is uncertainty. So that's on the what we call on the subject side. So mostly when Lumpucha talks about uh, Anicca, an, uh, uh, that quality, he focuses on that feeling of uncertainty, the that not being sure what's going to happen. That mainer, it's not a sure thing. He's a feeling not not doubt. No, it's not doubt. Uh, well, it, it it can be that uh, that uh, if the mind attaches to it, it wants certainty and it's feeling uncertain. But if it's if it's deliberately uh, applied with with wisdom, then that uh, uncertainty is liberating. It's a way of letting go of the habits of attachment of expecting things to be certain or to be sure or to be definite. When you see it change, um, I think it's just change, and you don't feel anything. 
<laughs> well, if that's your experience, fine. If you you never have any sense of, of uncertainty. Every moment, um, not only, the, for example, the movement, the movement of the feet, mm-hmm. appearing, disappearing, appearing, disappearing, and. <laughs> so, but the uncertainty would be that you don't know that you're going to take another step. It could be that you trip over, that, that bash your head, you know. I think so. I, maybe that's um, a realization that in that sure, maybe nothing would be. Yeah, that's, but it's a feeling. Or freedom, maybe. Uh, yeah, it, it can be. I mean, if that re- reflection on uncertainty is applied in a, a mindful and wise way, then the effect of that, recognizing that things are not sure, not certain, then that has a liberating quality. If it's attached to with a habit of self-view, then uncertainty is worrying. Uh, oh, what's going to happen? I don't know. And so that it leads to stress and, and anxiety. But also, this way of understanding a Nietzsche is not, it's not, it's just a, a way that I, I find it useful to talk about it. But it might, if it's not your experience, then that, that's fine. But it's, uh, uh, it's, I was, years ago, I was wondering why, when reading Lumpur Chah's teaching, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. He talks far more about uncertainty than he talks about change. Uh, that, uh, and, oh, I wonder where that comes from. And then I realized, well, that, yeah, the the word uncertainty is referring to a, a, an emotion, a feeling in the heart, whereas change is talking about a like a a perception or assessing uh, what what the the world is is doing. That it's a, more like a technical or almost like a scientific uh, recognition, or that the, the light is changing or the sound is changing. It's a sort of uh, so that was my my impression how I sort of related to that. I thought like, what, how Anicca uh, uh, is Well, let me carry on for a little bit. So, When the heart experiences change in the field of perception, it doesn't know what that object will change into. Thus it feels uncertainty. When meditation is well developed, the attention becomes more steady and is able to rest easily in the present moment. From this point of rest, we can use those three characteristics as reflections to examine the very nature of experience, to see how the mind works. In order to develop this perspective during meditation, we let the breath, the feelings of the body, the sounds we hear around us, the sensations in our feet as we walk, let them be, excuse me, let them be part of a continuous flow of experience. 
let them merely be patterns of perception that arise and pass away, and sustain that quality of open awareness, being attentive to patterns of change, the perceptions as they arise and pass away in each moment. There is a conscious letting go of interest in the content of experience in order to fully appreciate the process of experiencing. People recognize the difference between those two? So, the content of experience is say it's four minutes before seven in the evening and I'm saying these words and that's the, the content is the particular sound or visual forms or sensations that are being experienced. The process of experiencing is in a way, well I, I can say the, the content is like the, the words that are in the book. The process of, process of experiencing is recognizing this is a book <laughs> or recognizing oh, this is sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, coming and going and changing. So there's a letting go of the, the content to look at the, the sort of the, the, the bigger picture. So letting go of the words that are inside the book to recognize this is a book. That makes sense? In this way of developing the practice of meditation, the heart is embodying that quality of wakeful awareness. Essentially, it is being Buddha, being awake. And what that wakeful awareness knows is the Dhamma, that is to say, the patterns of nature as they arise and pass away. When the Buddha sees the Dhamma, what arises is the Sangha. It's a phrase Lumpur Sameda used to use very, very regularly back in the earlier era of Amravati. When the Buddha sees the Dhamma, what arises is the Sangha. When the awake mind sees the way things are, what arises is harmonious action the inclination of the heart towards what is noble and wholesome. If the mind is quite focused, quite aware, and pays attention easily to the present moment, then we can use this reflection on anicca to help facilitate that quality of open awareness, open attention. For example, if we are making an effort, if we are making an effort to be aware of the flow of experience, and then the attention is caught by a pain in our leg or the sound of a bird, we can reflect. The sound of the bird is changing, or the feeling in my leg is changing. That is anicca. That is letting go of the object, letting go of the content of the experience, and looking at the process of the experience instead. Then the mind is able to let go of the object that it is attached to, and simply be aware of the flow of experience once again. So that sense of, of whether it's inside or outside, is it changing? Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, is it changing? Whether it's uh, comfortable or uncomfortable, is it changing? So it's like shifting the perspective on the uh, to to uh, say work against the habits of our sensory system that is always sort of judging what we like, what we don't like, what's inside, what's outside, what's familiar, what's unfamiliar. So letting go of those habits of uh, of judgment that come from our instinctual conditioning, and to instead you know, look at the how the mind ex creates its field of experience moment by moment and to you know to train the mind to rest in that quality of knowing rather than being caught into the n knowing that process of experiencing rather than being caught into the content of what is experienced so i see seven o'clock has come around we've still got dukkha and anapata <laughs> to address but uh Maybe uh, if there are any questions, thoughts? Yes. Just a quick, um, when you, that last little bit you were mentioning, 
about uh, letting go of the content of experience and focusing on the experiencing. It sort of seems to be that um, if we focus on the content, we sort of get a bit stuck, so we're not really flowing with the experience because we're always a little bit behind what's happening because mm -hmm. we suddenly get stuck on something and the experiencing has moved on, but we're sort of back a little bit. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act in a way um, because it's like attuning the attention to the present but without uh, identifying with the uh, or uh, grasping the, the, the contents so that as if the mind sort of switches off and spaces out then that doesn't that's a sort of an abstracted like it's, so it's not just ig uh, ignoring all of the content and pretending it has it's a it's uh, all just a sort of blurry mush. <laughs> but uh, no, there's, there's still the, the attunement to the, the, the processes and, and content of the world, but there's a, 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 a loosening of the grip in respect to it. So I call it unentangled participating. Right. Slightly clunky term, but it's... Or well, Ajahn Sujita, I said, oh, this is really a, it's really a clumsy way of expressing it. Can you think of something shorter? And he said, hands-on letting go. <laughs> so, it's an Ajahn Sajito term, very neatly formed, hands-on letting go. And so one good example is rather like a, you can think, think of things like a tightrope walker or a, or a conductor of an orchestra, that they've got to be a, a paying attention completely, but they've also got to be sort of relaxed and, and completely sort of going with the flow of what's going on. So. I'm sure I haven't ever done any tightrope walking, but I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure if you're a tightrope walker and you think, oh, this is going really well, <laughs> <laughs> over you go. Like, oh, I've really got this one. It's really got this one down, then you're in for a drop. Or if you're conducting an orchestra and they're thinking, well, this is the best performance we've ever had. Oh, damn. <laughs> yeah, but the, yeah, so that, that sense of being attuned to, to it but not caught up at the same time. So it's, and I feel that's, when we talk about the middle way, that's one of the, the, the meanings of, the, of that term, the middle way. It's that sort of the middle between uh, participating and non-entanglement. That's it's the middle. And it's not just half grasping and half <laughs> abstracted, but it's, it's that, uh, that marvelous middle. Um, like a tightrope walker, that's that, that quality of balance that is totally attuned, it's relaxed, but also highly uh, alert and uh, energetic. So, and that, a lot of our life, I'd say our practice and what we're doing in a monastery, all of us, whether we're lay people or monastics, is developing that kind of a skill of, of both um, being a, a un, unentangled in the, the flow of activity and perceptions, but attuned to them at the same time, so that you, uh, you, you. Uh, oh, as T. S. Eliot put it in one of his poems, "Teach us to care and not to care." So that, and uh, you know, uh, I remember um, Jill Osler, who was the f one of the, the not the first retreat manager, but one of the the. Uh, she was the second person to run the retreat center. She did it for about seven years, all on her own. There was only one retreat manager. So she did the, the housekeeping, the registration, and the cooking. So looked after everything for seven years. So she was the sort of mother of the, the retreat center. She, uh, um, 
the last retreat she did, actually just before she died, she did a, a two-week retreat here um, a couple of years ago, so three years ago, uh, before she passed away, sadly. And uh, she had this uh, like a very strong insight into the, exactly that, uh, that kind of process. And she said, yes, it's like, it's like our two eyes. You know, one says everything matters, and the other one says nothing matters. And, and so everything matters, nothing matters. Everything matters, nothing matters. And that's how we, got, that's how we get 3D vision. I said, that's wonderful, Jill. <laughs> yeah, I was very impressed, very impressed with that uh, very neat way of expressing it. And that it's, that's that kind of uh, participating, but not entangled. That, that, and and it's, not, it's, not a, it's not sort of calculated, but it's a, there's a natural feel that we can find. There's a, a natural balance. And I feel that's what's embodied in the, the life of, of the Buddha and the, the, the great enlightened beings, is that there's that a, a very uh, comp- uh, natural and attuned practical uh, engagement, but the, not being limited or, or stressed or burdened by, by the body or the mind or the world in, in, in any way. So it's, it's, it's conveying that quality of, of um, knowing the, the content and, and knowing the, the process at the same time, so not grasping the content. And knowing the content, but uh, so being uh, attuned to the process at the same time. So let's leave it there for today. <laughs> Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.